James 3, 13 through verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we begin. Lord, as, as we sing, speak. Speak, O Lord, until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We ask just this morning that you'd speak through your word, that you would mature us in the faith, that you would turn our hearts to Christ. Let Christ be glorified through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to uh, think for a moment. We'll take a little poll, silent poll. And think of the wisest person that you know. Living or dead, can't be Jesus. The wisest person you know. Who would you write down? Who are you, who are you thinking of? I'd like to think that, that there'd be some grandparents on that list. Amen, grandparents? I hope there's some grandparents on that list. Maybe there's a few teachers there, a philosopher, a leader, maybe a few authors that you admire. But we, we might write these down or think of these people not knowing why we wrote them down. We just have a sense, well, they're, they're wise. So let's narrow it down a bit. What characteristics come to mind when you think of someone who is wise and understanding? No doubt you think of, of people who, someone who knows things, right? Someone who gets it. We know what we mean when we say he gets it or she gets it. Someone who understands the world and, and the way that things work. You might, you might be thinking of someone who knows how to fix things. Fix your mind, fix your heart, fix physical things. Somebody who gives good advice. Maybe for some of you, you're thinking that, that someone who is wise is someone who has lived life to the fullest. They've raised their kids well. They, they, they knew how to plan for the future, how to, how to take care of their finances. They knew what risks to take and what risks not to take. You just had this sense. And certainly all of those are elements of wisdom, aren't they? But biblical wisdom, as we'll see this morning, biblical wisdom is more holistic. It involves the whole person, heart, mind, and soul, everything. And James, as you just saw, James says this wisdom is seen. It's shown. Wisdom is made evident in meekness and humility. Look again at what he says in verse, uh, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, how do you come up with this answer to defining who is wise and understanding? 
Where do you get this? It's kind of a surprising answer if you really take the time to think about it. Think about it. If we think of wisdom, we think of something like applied knowledge. There's this really cheesy, cliche answer about what wisdom is. You know what? Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put tomatoes in fruit salad. You've heard that? That's, um, that's clever. <laughs> but that's nothing like what James says wisdom is. One is proven to be wise, he says, through good conduct and works of meekness. It's almost like we're talking about a different subject entirely when you look at the way that James talked about wisdom. So where does his understanding of wisdom come from? Well, we know that James is a big fan of showing what you believe, right? Think of how much James has already, in our study of James, has already emphasized the outwardness of the Christian life. In chapter 1, we are to be doers of the word, right? Not hearers only. In chapter 2, true saving faith is shown by what we do. It's no surprise then that wisdom is also expressed outwardly. If there's anything that James despises or, or believes to be fraudulent, it is a privatized Christian life where one says he believes something inwardly, but there's no evidence, no outward evidence no expression of that belief. Well, what does this have to do with wisdom? Well, in what sense is wisdom shown? Is what we're asking, isn't it? That's the question we're going to see answered in this morning's text. In what sense is wisdom shown? So before I answer that, though, you're going to want to know where we're headed. All right? First, we're going to explore the origins of wisdom. Where does it come from? How do we receive wisdom? Secondly, we'll, we'll address worldly wisdom and its dangers. And then finally, we'll get to the answer to his question. True wisdom, what does it look like? What is the outcome of this true wisdom? If wisdom is known by its fruit, if wisdom is seen, what does it look like? So let's, let's first address the origins of wisdom. To understand the origins of wisdom, we need to go back to that chapter in Deuteronomy that Mike read for you. So turn in your Bible Back to Deuteronomy. Keep your finger in James. We'll turn back to Deuteronomy. The last of the first five books comes after Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to dwell there for a moment. And if you're there in Deuteronomy 4, look at verse 5. Moses, writing for us, speaking for us, says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. And then look at this. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So here, similar to James, we have that outward element of wisdom, the, the show me side of wisdom and understanding that James is insisting on. Israel, Moses says, was to show their wisdom and understanding to the world. But there's a difference between what we see here in Deuteronomy and what we read in James. Did you notice it? 
Deuteronomy says that the world would see Israel's wisdom and understanding through Israel's obedience to the statutes and rules of God, the Word of God. But James, James says we're to show our wisdom and understanding through works done in the meekness that wisdom brings. All right, so in both versions, wisdom is to be made visible, is to be shown, but Deuteronomic wisdom is through keeping the law, and Jacobian or Jamesian wisdom is seen in works done in humility. All right, so what's the difference? What's going on here? Now, I have no doubt at all that James knows Deuteronomy. In fact, he knows it better than you and I do. He was raised in a Jewish family and received very Jewish training. In that that famous story that we know of in Luke, where 12-year-old Jesus is at the temple amazing the teachers, I bet sweet baby James was, was probably toddling along with Mary and Joseph. How else... How else did they accidentally forget the Messiah of the world? (laughs) If if it were not for the younger siblings distracting them, surely James made that pilgrimage with his parents every year. And you see in John's gospel when you read it, that that James and and his other brothers frequently went to the feasts and festivals of, of the Jewish people there in Israel. James was thoroughly Jewish, and he was undoubtedly meticulously trained in the scriptures. So James knows how Moses in Deuteronomy answers the question, who is wise in understanding? He knows it. And yet when he answers the question, the same question for the church, it seems that something's changed. Something's changed since Israel so long ago received Deuteronomy and entered into the promised land. Something's different in James. Because if nothing at all has changed from Deuteronomy to James, then James would just say the same thing, right? He would instruct us the exact same way that Moses instructed his people. Who are the wise in understanding? Those who keep God's law. That would be his answer. But James does not say that. He says wisdom and understanding are shown in the meekness that wisdom brings. So we have to ask, as good Bible readers, what happened? between Deuteronomy and James. What happened between the Deuteronomy chapter 4 definition of who the wise and understanding are and the James chapter 3 definition of who the wise and understanding are? Well, in a word, Jesus. Jesus happened. The Messiah happened. But it's not that Jesus came and changed the definition of wisdom. Rather, Jesus fulfilled Fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law. He fulfilled Deuteronomy chapter 4, and he perfectly displayed God's wisdom. Jesus showed us what the wisdom of heaven is by obeying the statutes and laws of the Lord. But he also showed us this. Jesus showed us that wisdom is not just, it's not only external obedience, but that it is obedience with a humble heart. Jesus proved That the one filled with the wisdom of God is also the one who's gentle and lowly. And so this too fulfilled what the Bible teaches about who is wise. So Let me show you what I mean here. I'm going to show a lot of restraint and give you the short version. After Deuteronomy 4 and this instruction to show wisdom by keeping God's law, you keep going, you get to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So flip over there to Deuteronomy 8. And look at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 8. 
the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. There's that obedience command again. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your father. So, so Deuteronomy, just to give you some understanding of what this book is, it's the second giving of the law. Deutero means second. Namas is law. Deuteronomus, Deuteronomy, second law. Moses is teaching Israel God's commands a second time as they're going into the promised land. This is a, a covenant renewal for God's people. The first covenant was made at Mount Sinai. That was Israel's wedding to the Lord God. Now they're going into the promised land, and this is like a vow renewal ceremony. Moses is, is giving them the law again, and he continues in verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might, look what the word comes next, look at, look at what he says, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. What Moses is saying is God didn't just pick his people up out of Egypt and slavery and plant them in Canaan. He could have done that. Philip will tell you that. But, but instead, over decades, God humbled his people. He humbled them through testing. And that testing was to determine whether or not they would actually keep his law, his commandments. Or to use chapter 4 language, they were tested to see if they were truly going to show that wisdom of the Lord. When they were needy, when they were living in abundance, no matter what. So Israel's greatness to the nations around them, their, their wisdom made visible, was not going to be in their power. It was not going to be in their intellect or in their inventions or in their armies, but in their humble reliance on the Lord. He says as much in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So, so the connection then between obedience to God's law and humility, that where, where James is headed, the connection is that it is only through humility, only with a humble reliance on God and not themselves, that Israel would show that they were obedient all the way to their hearts. They were not. And that really is a major part of the narrative of the Old Testament. The inability of Israel to obey God's commands and live in his wisdom, show his wisdom. They couldn't do it. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's this anticipation that there would be a coming king who somehow would possess the wisdom from God. He, he would endure the testing of God. Heart, mind, and soul, his devotion would be to the Lord alone, and he would lead his people into righteousness. Isaiah the prophet said that this coming king, this Messiah, would have to have the Spirit of God within him in order to have this righteousness. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of Wisdom and understanding, there it is, that wisdom and understanding from Deuteronomy 4 and from James chapter 3, it's here in Isaiah 11, and it comes through the Spirit. 
The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And Isaiah goes on in verse 5. Righteousness, which comes through law-keeping, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So that's the expectation. Israel failed. Israel did not have the wisdom. The Messiah will, and he'll have it through the Spirit. So fast forward several centuries, and along comes Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, Savior of the world. And it's no accident that at the very beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, before the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is anointed with who? The Holy Spirit. Right before Jesus was led into the wilderness, wilderness for testing, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came to rest on Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, of counsel and might. That's who Jesus has. Exactly as Isaiah has prophesied. And so filled with the Spirit, Jesus is led by the same Spirit into his 40-day temptation in the wilderness, which is a a, a mirror of the 40-year temptation of Israel. And in Jesus' testing... When Satan attempted to lure Jesus into self-reliance and self-exaltation, what does Jesus say? Satan says, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responded to Satan with the very lesson that God said Israel was supposed to learn in the wilderness. Jesus told Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Exactly as we saw in Deuteronomy. And what Jesus was proving there was first of all his humility, his his, his reliance on the Lord. He would trust in the Lord even in hunger, even in desperation, even in starvation. And second, Jesus displayed his wisdom. His humility first and his wisdom second in that he was living out the statutes and the rules of God. They were clearly written on his heart. Jesus was living according to the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. So through his humility... And through his wisdom, Jesus showed he truly is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. So you need to see there's a vital connection between the Holy Spirit and living the righteousness that God commands. Wisdom and understanding come with the Spirit through whom obedience to God's commands is made possible. That, that Deuteronomy chapter 4 type of obedience, that light to the nations type of wisdom, could not happen without the Spirit. Without the indwelling Spirit, without hearts that were cut to the quick and made new by the Spirit, Israel was unable to obey God's commands. With the Spirit, through the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, Jesus the Messiah, the true Israel, lived according to the statutes and laws of God. Trusting God, relying on God, obeying God all the way to the cross. And throughout his life, Jesus personified the humility that accompanies that heavenly wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's what James is working with here. So any teaching on wisdom, we need to understand that first of all, James is operating on the grounds that Jesus has fulfilled the promises of the Messiah who would come, and he has within him the Holy Spirit of wisdom. This is how James can say that wisdom is more 
than what Deuteronomy 4 said. Now that we've seen the wisdom of God, now that it's been fulfilled in the obedience of Jesus Christ, we can see that this, this, this wisdom is exemplified in humility and meekness. Do you see the fullness then of what Jesus has accomplished? You've got to see this. You absolutely must see and understand that this is the foundation that James is working with. Because if we do not, if we, if we don't see that Christ here is in James's definition of wisdom in verse 13, then what happens is we look at verse 13 and say, oh, I'm just supposed to do that. I do that. I do James 3.13, and I'm a good person. And, and so then what happens is James's instruction becomes empty commands that are impossible to obey. So you've got to see that James is teaching us what wisdom looks like on this side of redemptive history. That's why I just spent the last 20 minutes, or however long that was, walking you through redemptive history, because that's James's point of view. We're seeing through his eyes here. This is what wisdom looks like on this side of the cross of Christ in history. Some of you will remember who were there with us at the beginning of James. In James chapter 1, I told you, and I've told you a lot since then, that James, when you're reading James, when you're studying James, James presupposes the gospel. So when we teach James, we have to draw out James's presuppositions that he's working with. So then when we see that James says we are to show our wisdom and understanding through works done in the meekness of wisdom, he's not just telling us you need to act more meek. And he's not saying either that we're just supposed to imitate Jesus' meekness to show our wisdom. Just try harder to be like Jesus. Sounds like, I won't actually, I'm not going to tell you what it sounds like. There's a reason why we've changed our children's curriculum, though. I will say that. So here, here's where we need to be careful. He's, Jesus, uh, James is not saying we are to just act like Jesus or to be humble like Jesus. That's skipping a vital step. That's like saying be like Jesus, telling a kid, a five-year-old, to be like Jesus. is like giving that five-year-old a full-size basketball, NBA-size basketball, telling him you need to go out and have the shooting form of, of, of Ray Allen or Steph Curry. Kid can't even lift the ball up. And you're telling him he's got to have that, that gooseneck finish. I look bad doing it, I know. <laughs> or it's like giving a, an eight-year-old a cello, but no bow, and say, you need to play like Yo-Yo Ma. It's asking the impossible. And James is not telling us to do the impossible here. It's not that Jesus was filled with the Spirit and so lived in the wisdom of God, and we're supposed to do what Jesus did without the Spirit. No, without the Spirit, we are as useless as Israel was, as hopeless as Israel was. The good news is that when Jesus, filled with the Spirit, ascended into heaven as the Messiah and went into the presence of the Father, he poured out his Spirit on the church. So all who are in Christ through faith are in Christ through the Spirit. Just as Jesus had the Spirit of God dwelling in him, so too do you if you're in Christ. Because of Christ's 
flesh-conquering work on the cross and his death-conquering work in the resurrection and his sin-atoning work in the heavenly temple, we have the gift of God. We have the gift of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom dwelling in us. So James is not saying, in verse 13, do the impossible. He's saying we are to do what Christ has enabled us and empowered us to do. Through the spirit of wisdom dwelling in our hearts, we can show that Christ in us is wisdom and understanding. Through the spirit of wisdom dwelling in us, we have the meekness of Christ as well, the humility of Christ. Because we have that, we show the meekness of Christ in works done according to the wisdom of the spirit in us. That's verse 13. And it's longer than you expected. But you've you've got to see the gospel in it, or you'll just beat your head against the wall. Second issue then, as we move towards what this true wisdom looks like, now that we understand we have it and we can display it, what does it look like? Well, James puts another detour here for us. He first wants to tell us what it's not. This is good teaching, but it's not. Whenever you're teaching, you have to say, it's not this, it's this, it's not this, it's this. And we see James doing this consistently for us. He's a good teacher. Look at verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, notice the language there, in your hearts. What's supposed to be in our hearts? The wisdom from above, the, the wisdom of God that accompanies the Spirit. But if there's something else there, if there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, well, then that's not the spirit of wisdom. That doesn't come from God. That's something else. So he says, if that's what you're displaying, do not boast and be false to the truth. What he means is do not say you have the spirit of wisdom from above. Don't claim, this is what he's saying, don't claim to be a born-again, spirit-indwelt Christian if your heart is constantly constantly filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Why not? Well, look at verse 15. Because that's not the wisdom that comes down from above. That is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are two references that go way back in the Bible, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the Garden of Eden, you have two wisdoms, rival wisdoms. One was the wisdom from God, and that was associated with humbly relying upon God. Uh, It was associated with obedience to God. And then on the other hand, you have this other earthly wisdom. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was desired to make one wise. So the temptation of the serpent, Satan himself in the garden, was to lead the woman to believe that God was holding something back from her, that he was keeping her down, trying to keep her from from truly prospering and truly being like God. And hence, with bitter jealousy, she is led to believe that God has something that he's keeping from her, something that she does not have, that he owes to her. And this embitters her. She becomes jealous. And this desire for something more, this desire to be greater than who she is, that's selfish ambition. And through that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, the woman craves the wisdom that comes from created things rather than the wisdom that comes from God. So she eats of the forbidden wisdom. 
gives some to her husband, the rest is history. It's sort of like when your mom says, don't cross your eyes, or they'll get stuck like that. Adam and Eve crossed their eyes. They were, they were filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and rebelling against God. They got stuck like that. And the result is exactly what we see in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The the, the jealousy and selfish ambition are passed on from Adam and Eve to the firstborn child, Cain, who lives according to the same demonic worldly principles. He's jealous of his brother's acceptance before God. He's embittered, and through selfish ambition to make himself great again, he kills his brother. And then you see that worldly wisdom all throughout Genesis, always cropping up, always causing chaos, always causing destruction. You see it with Israel in the wilderness and the Exodus. You see it in, especially in the judges and in the history books. It's everywhere, and its fruit is always chaos and disorder in what James calls here every vile practice. This verse 15, false wisdom is earthly, which is to say it has its sight set on the world or on the horizon, as Proverbs puts it. It comes from the world. It is unspiritual, James says. That means it's of the flesh. It's not of the spirit. It's void of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, he says it's demonic. And I, and I believe he says it's demonic because of its origins. Going back to the garden, this bitter jealousy, this came from the temptation. And then you see it, that, that crouching sin that consumed Cain, also demonic. And it's also possibly related to the stories of the, of the fall of Satan. That same bitter jealousy, selfish ambition that led to disaster. Wherever we find this worldly wisdom, this getting ahead, making the most of yourself, there you will find disaster. And we expect that of the world. Right? When you when you, when you turn on the news, you expect it. But James is particularly concerned about this kind of wisdom, fake wisdom, false wisdom, creeping into the church. That's the purpose of his letter. Already, James has confronted demonic, fraudulent faith in the church, the kind of faith that resides only in the mind, bears no fruit, the not-saving faith kind of faith. And he's confronted those who are teaching and leading people into that belief, into that false assurance. Now he's saying here, just as there's a false faith, there's also a false wisdom. When you have this false kind of wisdom, when worldly worldly wisdom makes its way into the church, you know what you get? Politics. Politics in the church. And I don't mean politics in the pulpit, that discussion we had on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. I mean politicking. The verb, the conniving, posturing, weaseling stuff, the gossiping and slandering, and people working their way into positions of authority in the church and causing troubles. The secret meetings and conspiring kind of politicking. Ultimately, the kind where people get seriously hurt and end up leaving the church or renouncing the faith altogether. And we'll see next week in greater detail how this was happening in the church's James is concerned about. And just a note, if you're visiting with us today, I didn't pick this passage because this is happening in our church. It's not happening in our church. We just preach verse by verse as we go through books of the Bible, and this is the next passage. 
But you need to understand it to help prevent trouble, right? So, but what James is showing here, an unhealthy church will primarily be characterized by this type of worldliness, this false wisdom, because an unhealthy church is often characterized by people who aren't born again. Unregenerate membership. People who claim to be Christians, who, who claim to have received the true wisdom, but in reality, they've not been born again. And because there will always be those who make false professions of faith, but who do not bear the fruit of true faith. And there will always be those who boast of Christ and claim to have the spirit of wisdom, but do not. Well, the Lord has given us a means to deal with this. Church discipline. As difficult as it is and, and as, as unnatural as it feels, church discipline is the means that God has given us for maintaining the purity and peace of the church. Church discipline is unnatural because it doesn't come from us. When, whenever we talk about this, it grates against our instincts, doesn't it? But if we follow our gut, we won't do it. If we only do what feels natural, we won't do what God says to do. Church discipline is unnatural because it comes from God's instruction to us and does not come from us. But it is vitally important to the health of the church because it is the means that God has given the church to ensure that the church's witness to the world would not be disorder and chaos and politicking and every vile practice. Rather, the witness to the world would be the church pointing the world to Christ. Let me read you what Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, The church can never have peace by sweeping sins under the rug and pretending they are not there. Man's wisdom says, cover up sin, keep things together. God's wisdom says, confess sin, and my peace will keep things together. Confront sin, confess sin, address sin, and trust that God will do what he says. Trust that God will protect his church and prosper his church and so glorify Christ in his church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and in your church. But that peace is not present where there is worldly wisdom. It is the outcome, that peace, that true peace is the outcome of the true heavenly wisdom from the Spirit. So look at, look at this in verse 17, the, the outcome of true wisdom in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So seven qualities. It's a good Bible number. Pure here, what he means by pure is it's related to holiness. You might hear an echo of Jesus' beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart there in verse 17. This, this aspect of wisdom isn't really seen. And we're, James is saying you've got to show it. Well, you can't really show a pure heart. You can't show purity, but it's foundational. It's necessary. James says it is first. All of the other qualities of true wisdom come from this, from the pure heart, a heart that's been made clean by God himself. Only God can cleanse our hearts. So if we must first show, we must first know that our hearts are made new by the Spirit before we can begin to show the, the wisdom of the Spirit. Secondly, the wisdom from above is characterized by its peaceableness. Again, you're seeing an echo of the Sermon on the Mount here, aren't you? Blessed are the peacemakers. So within the church, 
And that's, that's the context of James' instruction. Within the church, this is, this is someone who seeks to maintain the unity of the church, not seeking to sow division. If there's, a, if there's a difference of opinion, seeking to understand one another. Because Christ is a reconciling Savior, those who have the Spirit wrought characteristics of Christ will be a reconciling people, a peacemaking people. Again, set this up against bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Those two fleshly traits put the self first. Peaceableness puts the glory of Christ in the unity of the church first. You can see why this is a work of meekness and humility. It requires death to self, life in Christ. Third, James says that wisdom from above is characterized by gentleness. And some of you are thinking, this also kind of sounds like the fruit of the Spirit. It does. I agree. You, you hear echoes of Paul's fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. This is certainly a characteristic we see in the wisdom of Christ, isn't it? Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly, and he says, we're to learn this from him. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this gentleness is a posture, and it's a posture that others recognize as approachability. It's the opposite of someone who's combative or defensive. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's, he's putting on Christ. He's putting on the gentleness of Christ as he entreats the church. He's approaching a church who needs correction, but he's doing it gently, not overpowering them. He's holding back his strength, holding back his full authority and power. Certainly, Jesus was also characterized by this. But what this doesn't mean, doesn't mean Jesus was a teddy bear. It does mean that the sickly woman knew she could approach him and touch the hem of his garment. People wanted to be near him. Even children wanted to come to him. We were to have that same quality if we have the, the spirit of Christ in us, the spirit of wisdom. Fourth, the wisdom of the indwelling spirit is open to reason. Open to reason. Teachable. This is someone who's willing to yield. There is a compliant, a submissive quality to a person when the spirit of wisdom is present. I've done membership interviews with, with, with many of you. And sometimes we have different views of the end times. Or maybe the, the ins and outs of, of, of Calvinism. I've had, had a wonderful conversation with a brother about whether baptism ought to precede the Lord's Supper and what baptism is. In each of these conversations that we've had together in the spirit of unity, with a heart that is open to reason, you are willing to be members of one body, despite subtle disagreements. You're willing to submit yourselves to the teaching of the word, despite these little differences. And that's exactly what James is talking about here. This quality is in this church, is what I'm telling you. We are unified as a church. We are unified to the core on the essentials. We have a statement of faith. And we, we bind ourselves to that. This is who we are as a church. This is what we believe. If you disagree, there's a lot of other churches. And where there are differences on lesser matters, there's charity in abundance. Can I just say here how grateful I am to be in a church 
filled with the grace of God and the wisdom of the Spirit, where we listen to one another. Do not assume the worst about one another, but rather with charity and teachability, we consider the views of others as valuable. Why? Because because we know that, that our brothers and sisters have the Spirit of God in them, that they love God's Word. We know that Christ died for them. And that, that just that brings about this, this, this spirit of peace in the church. I can say sincerely, I love you, and I am grateful for you as, a, as, as, as my church. If you're visiting with us this morning, know this. I can say this with a clear conscience. This is a church where the love of the truth of God is greater than the love of self. And that is not to our credit, but to the Spirit amongst us bearing the fruit of wisdom. Fifth, the wisdom from God is seen in those who are full of mercy and good fruit. This is one idea. Think, think generosity and forgiveness here. He says that this is bearing, the mercy bears fruit because these two qualities, generosity and forgiveness, and mercy, they show themselves by their fruit. You cannot be generous without giving right? It, it's, it's impossible. And you cannot be forgiving without forgiving. <laughs> Mercy is at the heart of both generosity and forgiveness, and it's a very visible quality of the spirit of wisdom within us. Again, this sounds like the Beatitudes and Galatians 5, right? You're hearing both of these here. James is drawing on Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Sixth, the spirit of wisdom within you is seen in your impartiality. And we saw James deal with this already, right? We're back in, in chapter 2 with that whole matter of treating the rich and the poor differently. The Holy Spirit of wisdom within us views people as God views them. So we, we take ourselves out of it. The Holy Spirit in us sees people as they are, made in the image of God and in need of Christ. That's it. So there's no partiality because there's no rich or poor, there's no slave or free, there's no young or old, there's no male or female or black, white, Latin, Asian, or whatever. When it comes to being made in the image of God, it's all just made in the image of God, in need of Christ. And that's what we see through the spirit of wisdom. So there's no temptation to partiality there. Seeing people through the wisdom of God's spirit frees us to show the love that Christ has shown us. Finally, The seventh quality is sincerity. You see that in verse 17. Sincerity. This list begins with a pure heart, purity, a heart made clean by God, and it ends with another type of purity, a a single-mindedness, a wholeness in our actions. We are not two-faced if we have the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of wisdom. We're not hypocritical if we have the Spirit of wisdom in us. Saying one thing and meaning something else. Saying one thing to some people and something else to some other people. We don't have to. We don't have to be that way if we have the spirit of wisdom. If, if we don't have the spirit, then all of life is pretending. It's Phariseeism, trying to appear wise, trying to appear to be a Christian. But where the spirit of wisdom is present in us, there is no pretending. No wearing happy face church masks. There's, there's no need. Why? Because we already know that our only hope is in Christ, not ourselves. We already know that in ourselves we aren't good, we're not wise, we're not holy. We don't have to try and pretend to be something we're not. 
Because of the freedom that the spirit of wisdom brings, where there is a need to confess sin and repent, that's what we do. Those who are trusting in Christ confess sin and repent. We, f- we do it freely, joyfully. When we feel the flesh puffing up, when we feel the old self, that old bitter jealousy, those old selfish ambitions, when we, when we feel that welling up inside of us, we don't have to pretend it's not there. We confess it to God, repent, receive the forgiveness that Christ gives, and then bear the fruit of the peace of Christ, the Spirit in us. And the result of this is the harvest of righteousness. Look at verse 18. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now this harvest language, this fruit language, it's end times language. It's a picture of the church on the day of judgment. So we, when we look at this, we need to think big picture here, long term. God has planted us, or rather he has brought us forth by implanting the Spirit in us. We saw that in chapter 1. And we receive the Spirit, live according to the Spirit, and, and the Spirit in us bears the fruit of wisdom. And, and, and the Spirit in us becomes visible, wisdom becomes visible in us because of that fruit. All of that good fruit you see in verse 17 is the harvest Peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, impartial, sincere. That's what God is producing through you, in you, for the glory of Christ. Those fruits are the witness to the world, to the righteousness of Christ. Those fruits are the the light, the city on the hill that Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount. And as we continue to bear that fruit through the Spirit, God is planting more fruit through us. Right? He's sowing the seeds of the gospel through our lives, through a proclamation. That's why the Apostle Paul says that he's been given the ministry of reconciliation. Right? Have you seen that in 2 Corinthians 5? Given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is peacemaking, and that's what we're about. That's who we are. We're peacemaking people. We've been reconciled to God through Christ. There's peace there. We have been reconciled to one another through Christ. There's more peace the result is peace with God and peace with one another. And we continue this, this ministry by making visible our peace with God and our peace with one another. And proclaiming this same gospel of peace wherever we are in our words and in our actions. More fruit is sown. Harvest of righteous at the end. Christ is glorified. This is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God. Let's thank him.